Good morning, church. All right, it's great to be here with you today. It is cold and wet outside, but it's nice and warm with you here this morning. Greetings to our online family as well. My name is Rick Romaine, and it is my pleasure to speak with you this morning. I'm married to my amazing wife, Elizabeth, and together we have four wonderful sons. My house is very loud. If you're wondering why I'm dressed like this, I'm going to Wakanda after church with the preteens. Today's message is called The Call to Love One Another. It's a two-part uh, lesson. I'm going to be doing the first part today, and our brother Mike Facey will be doing the second part next week. Let's pray. Great and awesome Father God, we come before you in your son Jesus' name this morning. We thank you, God. We thank you for letting us be here. Father God, I pray. I pray, Lord, that your message will be clear this morning, that you will move me out the way, and that you will speak the word through me, Father. Whatever the church needs to hear, please open me up and let me share. I pray that you open our hearts and minds to receive the message today, and I pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. So as I mentioned, we're going to be talking about the call to love one another, this is a topic I've been studying now for a few weeks, um, and I had some great discussions with my Bible talk in preparation today. Shout out to them. Philippians uh, chapter 4, starting in verse 2, it reads, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Sinti to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Euodia and Sinti go down in history for fighting with each other. But they were true Christians. That can't be denied. Paul talks about how they played an active role in spreading the gospel in Philippi. Some scholars even believe that they were leaders in the church. However, they allowed their disagreement to escalate to the point of impacting the whole congregation so much so that Paul calls them out publicly in this letter by name. It's not clear what their disagreement was about. But something else to think about, most scholars think that Paul, the person who wrote this letter, was in jail in Rome when this was written. I want you to think about that. These sisters are in uh, Philippi, if you pronounce that correctly. Paul is in Rome. There was no Instagram back then. There was no Facebook there was no uh, Twitter. How did he even know about it? Their conflict was so dire that it reached them all the way in another country. In this situation, Paul appeals to these sisters, and not just them, but he encourages the whole church to help them reconcile and make peace. However, Paul had his own run in with conflict. Let's look at one example. Oh, I don't have my clicker. Right before Paul was about to go into a second missionary journey, a huge conflict arose between him and another brother. Acts 15, 36 reads, Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preached and the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord, and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. 
But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had a sharp disagreement that they parted company. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. Paul chose Silas and left. Commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord, he went through Syria and Sicilia. So I want to talk about Paul and Barnabas for a moment. So Paul and Barnabas were great friends and partners in the gospel. When Paul was first converted in Acts 9, the scriptures tell us that Barnabas was the first to welcome him to the fold. Everyone else was afraid of him because in his previous life, he persecuted Christians. Barnabas convinced them all to give Paul a chance. That was the start of an amazing partnership and friendship. Around AD 47 and 48, Paul went on his first missionary journey to Syria, Cyprus, and Asia Minor. On their first missionary journey together, John Mark, who was Barnabas' cousin, came with them. Along the way, though, John Mark decided to return home. Essentially, he abandoned them. Despite this, the first missionary journey was a great success. In Acts 15, Paul wanted to go back and support those new churches that were planted. However, as we read, Barnabas wanted to take Mark as well, or John Mark. Paul didn't want to. He probably thought Mark was a flake and a bum, and he was angry because he abandoned him in the past. Verse 39 says they had a sharp disagreement. Now, the Bible doesn't mince words. They probably had a serious argument. They were probably angry with one another. I imagine their voices were elevated, and they refused to budge from their positions. If he's going, I'm not going. Barnabas refused to give up on John Mark, and Paul felt that Mark was a burden to them, and they had a lot of work, and they couldn't trust him. It was so serious that these two men of God parted ways. They disagreed so strongly, they no longer worked together. They could not come to a peaceful agreement. Now, both of these individual missions were successful. The word was spread. And, but, but I can't help but wonder how much more powerful their journey would have been, how much more impactful their ministry would have been if they had stayed together. It's uncomfortable when you have a disagreement with a fellow brother or sister. I remember the first time I had a conflict with a brother. I was devastated. I was a teenager, and I'd just been baptized. And, I, you know, you have all these, these visions like this is utopia, and everyone here is great, and no one sins. <laughs> but I was wrong. I was so upset, I was ready to leave the church. I'm like, this can't be church of God. I thought that, you know, that sinners don't sin against each other. Not very logical. I had to learn that when you gather a group of sinners together, they inevitably sin against one another. That brings me to my first point. Conflict is to be expected. Conflict is normal. So Paul was an apostle. This means that he was literally hand-selected by Jesus to be his follower. The two women that we mentioned earlier had reputations of being amazing leaders in Philippi and supporting him in his ministry, but they were also human. Stories like this help us to see that our predecessors often struggled with get along, getting along, 
It's not a new thing. We've all been in situations where our feelings have been hurt, and we've all been in situations where we've been wronged or mistreated. The hard truth of the matter is that we have also been on that other side. We've also been the ones hurting other people, and we've also been the one wronging our neighbors. The good news is that the Bible gives us guidelines how to handle these situations. Turn with me to Matthew 18. Matthew 18, starting, I believe, in verse 15, it says, If your brother sins against you, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Matthew 18 gives, a, gives us a blueprint on how we should handle conflict. The first thing to do if we genuinely want to settle a difference with someone is that we need to go to them face to face. The first step that Jesus identifies is that we need to approach the person we have a conflict with one on one. Sometimes, if we're going to keep it real, we skip past that part, don't we? So we got person A, we got person B, and we have person C. You are person A, person B sins against you. However, you go and talk about the conflict with person C instead of going directly to the person you had a conflict with. We call this triangulation. What are some excuses why people do that? I, I, I would just get in some advice. I would just get in some advice. Or I, I would just vent in. Can you believe what that person did to me? Sometimes we, we're being confidential without being confidential. I can't believe that brother with four kids and light skin and bald head and glasses. I can't believe. I, I ain't going to say his name, though. I can't believe he came and told stories about me, man, up in here. But I ain't saying his name, though. But these are some of the tricks that we play to avoid confrontation. Jesus calls for us to be direct and discuss matters initially just between the two of you. Not being direct with each other is a major cause of conflict in the church, workplace, and family. If conflict gets resolved at that stage, great. The Bible says you have won your brother or sister over. However, the scripture says that we may need to bring a mediator. We don't skip that step. We first talk one-on-one. -on -one. Only after the direct approach wasn't successful, um, we go to that. We skip that. We're, we're in sin. The second step is to bring in another person or persons, people who are wise, gracious, not hot-tempered, and not judgmental. The goal is not so much to put the offender on trial, but to help both people to see see each other's sides, reconcile, and make peace. And if this fails, then we must not still give up, but seek the help of the Christian community. Pray for the offender for healing and reconciliation. I think in some senses, that's what Paul was doing in Philippians 4 when he called out those sisters. I'm going to move on to my next point. God desires reconciliation. Matthew 5. Therefore... If you're offering your gift at the altar 
and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. I want you to think about this. Resolving conflict is so important to God that he wants us to postpone our worship until a reconciliation can be made with our brother or sister. God takes reconciliation so seriously, he would rather us leave our gift, postpone our worship, and make peace with each other. Now, when I first read the scripture, for years, I read it that if I had an issue with someone, leave my gift. But that's not what it says. That's not what it says at all. For years, I thought this, at least 10 years. But when I actually sat down to read, to read it, it says that if you know someone has an issue against you, Jesus placed the responsibility on the person who realizes they've given another person cause to be angry, hurt, etc. Christ's instruction to leave your gift at the altar instead of finishing what you're doing. There's also a sense of urgency there. Go to your brother, whether literally your brother, born from the same mother and father, or simply a friend or associate. We're called to make things right as soon as possible. Don't wait. Then come back and finish your worship after you sought reconciliation. Who is our brother, though? The Greek word used here is adelphos. It could, be, it could be a biological brother. It could be someone from your same country of origin. It could be a fellow believer, your brother in Christ. But it could literally mean all people. About two years ago, I received a call from one of my cousins. And she was informing me that another one of my cousins was upset with me and that I should make peace with her. I was annoyed. I was annoyed. In my mind, I was fine. I had no problems with her. If she had problems with me, why she didn't say nothing? It's her problem. I was literally unbothered. I also felt that if she was the one with the problem, she should take the first step, not me. Seemed logical. I got four kids. I got a demanding job, health challenges, family responsibility. I got a dog. <laughs> I had lots of reasons in my mind why I shouldn't have to chase behind nobody because they, they are the ones who's upset with me. But that's not what the scripture says here. That's not what the scripture says here. This is the same Jesus who would leave the 99 to go after that one sheep. He's calling for us to do it as well. I finally called. It took two years. And the, and the truth is it wasn't received well. But I wonder if I had done it in a moment, if, if that reconciliation would have been more successful. It's not just for disciples. When it says be reconciled to your brother, that word, like I said, it also talks about our family as well. Earlier, earlier this month, I had a similar situation. I lead a school, and I work with several partner organizations. Now, one partner organization was upset. One of the people who lead one, they was upset with a decision I made. But I, I noticed that um, every time like, I would come in the office, they would like, avert their eyes or like, walk on the other side of the hallway. I'm like, man, you're playing games, man. That's... And, 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 and my, my initial attitude was, you know what? I'm an introvert. Less people talking to me, the better. <laughs> I don't got time. And then I felt convicted by the scripture. 
And I'm like, not even a disciple, who cares? But it says all people. I scheduled a meeting last week with this person. I sat down with them, and, and, and surely enough, there were some misunderstandings that needed to be cleared up. And, and in the end, the organization and the school will be better for it. We can't let ourselves be too busy to reconcile. God is saying, don't let me be the excuse. His desire for reconciliation is so strong that he says, leave everything behind. Leave that. I don't want your sacrifice if you're not at peace with your brother. I don't want your worship if you're not at peace with your sister. Let's dig even deeper. Let's go to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, starting in 19, it says, We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. This is the most convicting scripture in the Bible for me. We can't say we love God if we hate our brother. Give me one second. The scripture starts off telling us that we love because he first loved us. We love Jesus. That's why we're all here this morning in the rain. We're waking up early. But Jesus loved us first, though, while we were still sinners. Before we did anything to deserve his love, he loved us. Our love for God is always in response to his love for us. He initiates and we respond. We never have to draw near to God. Instead, he draws us to himself. We often treat our love for God and our love for people as two separate things. However, the past two scriptures shows us that we can't do that. There is no differentiation. Our love for people is directly connected to our love for God. Well, some will say, I don't hate them. I just really don't like them. The command to love one another is exactly that. It's a command. It's not a suggestion. It's not optional. It's not supplementary text. It is a full command from God. John 13, 35, you don't have to turn there, says that people we know that we are disciples by our love for one another. It's our calling card. In a room this size, there are brothers and sisters in this room who haven't spoken to each other for years due to unresolved conflicts. In a room this size, there are brothers and sisters who have family members that they have cut off or haven't spoken to in years. There are husbands and wives who are angry with one another and barely talk. Some of you say, Rick, you don't know what that brother did to me. Or if you knew what my uncle did to me, you wouldn't be up there saying that. I'm just reading the Bible, guys. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what happened, but God does. Let's take a look at Matthew 18 again. And that's going to take me to my third and final point. Matthew 18 was a scripture that 
talk to us about how we resolve conflict. So within that same context, Jesus was talking about forgiveness with his apostles and disciples. And starting in verse 21 of Matthew 18, it says, Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to, 70 time, up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he, his wife, his children, and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell to his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him in the same words, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what happened, they were outraged and told their master everything. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Wow. Wow. So the servant owed his master about 10,000 talents, or some scriptures say 10,000 bags of gold. Commentators list that, that modern value somewhere between 12 million and $1 billion. That's a big range. But what it tells us is that it was a tremendous amount to owe somebody and clearly unpayable. The man was a servant. Where was he going to get? Sometimes I wonder, how did he even get into all that debt? But that's besides the point. The real point was that the man was not able to pay. Therefore, the master gave the command to sell the man, his family, all his property so that it would satisfy the debt. It would give the master what we call justice. Think about what would happen. Everything that the man owed would be sold. His wife sold over here. His kids sold over there. And him as well, between slavery and jail. He fell down on his knees and begged. He begged the master. He begged the king for forgiveness. The king didn't have to do it. He chose to be compassionate. He chose to have grace. And he forgave all of his debt. However, the servant who had literally just been forgiven an unpayable debt went out and found someone who owed him money. Upon meeting him, he assaulted him. The Bible says he choked him. That's kind of messed up. Grabbed him up, started choking him, and demanded payment. 
If you look at the scriptures, there was no words exchanged. He didn't say, hey, how you doing? He just rolled up on him and started choking him. The debt was real, though. He owed him 100 silver coins, 100 denarii, which is equal to about 100 days' wages. It's not an insignificant amount, but it was nothing compared to the amount that he owed the king. If you want to do the math, it was one six hundredth of what he owed the king. If you want to dig down deeper, 600 times what he owed the king. In verse 29, the man who had the smaller debt used literally the same words that he used with the king. Be patient with me. Give me time and I'll pay it back. But he refused to listen. The crazy thing about this story is that he didn't have any issues with conscience. It's when other people saw what happened and they were disgusted. That's the thing. Sometimes when things are so heinous, you don't need to be religious. You don't need to be a disciple to see that this is messed up. And they went and told the king. When the master heard this, he was understandably angry. It was wrong for a man who literally had just been forgiven so much. His life saved. His wife saved. His kids saved. His assets saved. To just go and treat someone else like that. So, since he wanted justice, the king gave him justice. He gave him what he deserved. Justice instead of mercy. I ask you this morning, church, do you want mercy from God or do you want justice? Be careful of your answer. The sword of justice goes both ways. Without mercy, you too will pay for your sins, whether you're ignorant of them or not. The man was ignorant or ungrateful about how much he was forgiven. He wanted justice. He got it. The principle is clear. God has forgiven us an amazing debt. And any debt owed to us is insignificant in comparison. Verse 35 says, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Some of us are in danger of losing our reward simply because we refuse to forgive. Since we have been forgiven so much, we have no right to withhold forgiveness from others. We are the debtor who is forgiven an infinite debt. But we hold on to the small debts that others owe us. If anyone had the right to withhold forgiveness, it was God. A billion dollars, 10,000 bags of gold, and he forgave more freely and more completely than anyone we'll ever meet. What possible right do we have to hold on to our forgiveness, our unforgiveness? Luke 7, which I'm not going to turn to for the sake of time, tells a similar story about sin and forgiveness and how it plays out. Jesus quoted to the Pharisees, He who has been forgiven little loves little, and he who has been forgiven much loves much. I ask you today, church, have you been forgiven little or have you been forgiven much? That quote was directed at Pharisees. Now, the issue with the Pharisees is that they didn't see themselves as sinners. They saw themselves as super holy. They saw the woman in that story who washed her hair with Jesus's, who washed Jesus' feet with her hair and oil. She was a sinner. Jesus was trying to help them to see. It's a matter of perspective. I was baptized as a teen. I was 16 years old. 
and I became a team worker a little bit after that. Shout out to the teams. Now, as a team worker, there was a teen I worked with who struggled with this concept. He felt that since he got baptized so young and he didn't really get involved in the big sins and that um, he didn't have a lot of experience, he didn't really see himself as being forgiven of that much. Um, Subsequently, he left God. Many, many years later, he came back with lots of regret. and and, And by the grace of God, he's our brother today but with a, with a lot of regrets. It's all about our perspective. If you cheated on a test, you're a sinner. Use profanity at school, disobeyed your parents, you're a sinner. We have to make sure that we don't behave like Pharisees. If we can grasp and understand that our sins have hurt God, that our sins put Jesus on the cross, that we have a deep need for grace and forgiveness, how will we in turn forgive others? Our ability to forgive others is directly connected to our ability to understand that we ourselves have been forgiven. I ask again, have you been forgiven little or have you been forgiven much? I spoke a great deal today about forgiveness and reconciliation in this call to love one another, but they are different. Reconciliation requires two people. As disciples, that's what we are called to. It is a restoration of a relationship. At times, though, the other party may be unwilling to restore the relationships. Family, divorce, etc. According to the scriptures, the standard is reconciliation. But sometimes, because the other party is unwilling, we may not reach it. Forgiveness, though, requires only one person. It's you. It's a conscious, deliberate decision to release feelings of resentment or vengeance towards a person or a group who has harmed you, regardless of whether they actually deserve it or not. Forgiveness requires only one person. One thing to understand, though, forgiveness does not release you from consequences. You break into somebody's house and steal stuff, the owner might say, I forgive you, but you're going to jail. You're going to jail. We can't place conditions on forgiveness. I'll forgive them when they're sorry enough. I'll forgive them when I know they repented. Forgiving someone who's not sorry is one of the hardest things to do. About three, four years ago, um, I was asked to be a principal. It's, It's kind of a crazy story. On my way to work one day, as an assistant principal, I, I prayed, I was like, by this time next year, I want to be a principal. 20 minutes later, I got to work, and my boss is like, I quit. I was like, oh, snap. She was like, I quit, and I called the superintendent and recommended you for the job. And uh, I was like, what? I said, a year. (laughs) Um, It was a crazy situation. You know, I, I came into that day expecting one thing. Next thing I know, I'm meeting with the superintendent of the district. I'm meeting with the deputy superintendent. And they're asking me to be the principal. They're trying to convince me why it would be a good thing. I've always imagined that would be the other way around. Like, hi, I'm Rick. This is what I did. Um, this, this is why I would be a good leader. They already knew my reputation. They already knew what I had done. And they were asking me to do it and, and asking me to consider it. It was very humbling. But here's where it gets difficult. 
because principal jobs are very competitive, and there was someone who had their eye on that job. Uh, and so what started to happen was this person, uh, he was friends with a lot of people on, on that staff, and he started convincing them to like write letters about me and to uh, uh, assassinate my character. And, to, um, and, and, and so the, and the crazy thing is that the person who told me this was a superintendent. She was like, I'm getting these letters. I know they're not true. And then when I saw some of the names, I was like, I thought that person was my friend. So that's why I don't have no friends on, on the staff no more. <laughs> I don't. That's it. But I was angry. I was angry. I felt betrayed. I was hurt. Um, that people would assassinate my character so badly. That people would... Uh, try to take food out of my kid's mouth. That's the part that made me angry. Because it's like, you ask about my kids, you don't care about my kids. I felt hate. I wanted vengeance. And I knew that when I took over the job, I was going to make these people's lives miserable. <laughs> they was going to pay for their disloyalty. I was angry, guys. I was so angry, I couldn't even sleep at night sometimes. I would wake up, ooh, hate those people. <laughs> Couldn't even sleep. But the bad part was that in my anger, I started taking out other people. I started taking out all my kids. I started being impatient with my wife. I started being short with my parents. It was bad. Screaming at my brother and sister. That's the thing. When we choose not to forgive, the only person we're hurting is ourselves and the people we love. I had to make a decision, guys. I had to make a decision. Some people were not sorry because all of a sudden when I became principal, everyone was my friends again. But, you know, it was, it was something I had to learn. I had to make a decision to forgive for the sake of peace, for the sake of making sure the community was strong, and mostly for myself and my soul, for my family. I had to trust in God to protect me. Something else that humbled me was remembering, Rick, you a sinner, man. I'm a sinner myself who needed forgiveness. I'm a sinner, folks. I got rebuked by my three-year-old son last week. I was driving, and um, I, I was driving, and somebody cut me off. I'm not going to lie, I forgot he was in the car. And I yelled, man, you're so stupid. And my son was like, don't say that, Daddy. I was embarrassed. Thank goodness kids are, are more forgiving than we are. I'm grateful for grace. And when I reflect on, on what I've done to hurt God, it helps me to remember that I need to forgive other people as well. In conclusion, I want everyone to remember that conflict is normal. It's been happening for thousands of years, and it's going to continue to happen. We should not be surprised when it comes up. It's expected, guys. Otherwise, there wouldn't have been a whole section in the Bible on how to deal with conflict. The second thing I want everyone to remember is that God desires reconciliation. Guys, there is no, we can't say we love God and we don't love each other. We can't separate it. Like, I love God, I, I really do, but I, I just don't like these people. 
I don't like that person. I don't like my father. I don't like my uncle. It doesn't work like that, guys. There is a strong connection between loving God and loving each other. We can't separate the two. Finally, we must forgive because we ourselves have been forgiven. So I have good news on that conflict between Paul, John Mark, and Barnabas that we read about earlier. I'm going to tell you. So remember, the whole, the whole reason they split up was because of Mark, or John Mark as they called him. Paul thought he was a bum, and Barnabas was like, I don't talk about my cousin that way. But 2 Timothy 4.11 reads, only Luke is with, so this is, towards, this is towards the end of Paul's life. And he writes, and he's asking for help. And in 2 Timothy 4.11, it reads, only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. This is beautiful because there's evidence that there was reconciliation between, between them. Whom Mark was, was the conflict around. So Mark turned out not to be the flake that, he, that, that Paul thought he was. In fact, in fact, anyone ever heard of the gospel of Mark? Mark is the name of the person who wrote the gospel of Mark. So today, if you have anyone that you have to forgive, if you have anyone that you need to reconcile with, do it. Don't wait for tomorrow. Let us love one another and let's pray. Great and awesome Father God, we come before you in your son Jesus' name. We thank you, God, for your mercy. We thank you, God, for your forgiveness, which we do not deserve. Father God, we pray, Lord. We thank you for your sacrifice on the cross. We thank you for your body, which was broken on the cross for our sins. We thank you for the fruit of the, for your blood that was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. And as we stand here today, help forgive us as we forgive those who sinned against us. Father God, please be with us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.